2: It's Wednesday, the 1st of September, 2021. Welcome to a new month here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, your host. Always thrilled to have you all listening. It's an honor. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com, our online home. You can also get the free podcast there, as well as FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcast. No charge to you on demand every day. We, of course, recommend listening live. Hell of a lineup coming up. Later this hour, Jonah Goldberg is here. Next hour, Brett Bayer, host of Special Report, will join. In our final hour, Senator Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Republicans in the U.S. Senate. So you're going to want to tune in for all of today's show or catch it all on the podcast. Fox News alert as we begin. Stats. Coronavirus cases in the United States, 39.3 million. That's the official number overall since the onset of this pandemic last March. The true number, cases, much higher. The death toll in the United States, 640,478. With 52 minutes and change till the closing bell, A mixed day on Wall Street. Looked like the S&P and the NASDAQ both up. The Dow slightly down, down 36 points to 35,323. In the meantime, we are keeping an eye on the White House briefing room with Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, currently taking questions on a number of different issues. In fact, let's just dip in very briefly live and listen in on Jen Psaki
0: from the United States or any country we've spoken with around the world. It will be very dependent on their behavior and whether they deliver on what the expectations are of the global community.
2: And then quickly on abortion. Um, we've seen in a number of states, Republican-led states, an effort on voting rights, for instance, to pass similar legislation for All right, So they're moving on, on to other rights. issues. Of- but you heard the end of her answer there about the Taliban and their behavior. Apparently, the Biden administration's Relations with the Taliban will depend on the behavior of the Taliban. And I think that that is a very good place to launch the opening monologue, as a matter of fact. Couldn't have planned that any better. Because I want to talk about that. And I want to begin that conversation by playing you a few sound bites from Jake Sullivan. Right? He's this sort of dweebish guy, the national security advisor for Biden who looks like he just walked off of an Ivy League campus where he just gave a lecture about something. And they have him out front talking about a lot of these issues and saying some truly outlandish things about Afghanistan, making excuses for our failures there. And by our, I mean the Biden administration's failures there and our broken promises to so many people. And there was something that he said in particular on Good Morning America that completely blew me away. He was asked about the betrayal. He was asked about the critics who were saying this was planned horribly. We've left Americans behind, hundreds, probably thousands of Americans behind. New York Times, as I mentioned yesterday, reporting that there are thousands likely green card holders and legal permanent residents of the United States, i.e. Americans, stranded in Afghanistan. In addition to the unknown number of U.S. citizens, they say it's in the low hundreds. I don't think I necessarily believe them, and we got into some of that math yesterday. And then we know that the number of Afghans that we've left behind, who we promised to get out, they number in the tens of thousands. And we will highlight some of that later in the show today, a new Wall Street Journal story and analysis about that. So Jake Sullivan's asked about the criticisms on this front, and his answer, I think, is just extraordinary. And there's one part of it in particular that I want you to focus on. Listen to the whole thing, and then we'll drill down a bit. Cut 16, the National Security Advisor under the Biden administration
3: leadership means taking a look at the situation and asking the hard question what is going to be in the best interests of the united states of america those american citizens still in afghanistan and those afghan allies and he got a unanimous recommendation from his secretary of state his secretary of defense all of his civilian advisors all of his commanders on the ground and all of the joint chiefs of staff that the best way to protect our forces and the best way to help those americans was to transition this mission. At the end of the day, the question will be, did we protect those American citizens? Did they get out if they wanted to get out? We believe that we will get out, any person who wants to get out, and we will have completed that mission. And those who are criticizing are not the ones who have to sit in the Situation Room and make the hard calls about the threats that we face and the objectives we're trying to obtain. And President Biden made that hard call, and it is a call he believes will ultimately serve the interests of our people, all of our citizens, and our country.
2: Okay, so he's saying we expect down the line we'll get everyone out. I think that is a massive leap of faith. I think it flies in the face of what we're already seeing, and I will bring you some more details on that here in just a moment. But notice that towards the end he says those that are criticizing are not the ones who have to sit in the situation room and make the hard calls. As if... You have to be on the very inside, part of the inner sanctum of the top levels of government to truly appreciate the hard calls being made. The problem, sir, is that the hard calls that were required in the last few weeks, including the decision to leave Afghanistan, leaving Americans behind, leaving allies behind, whom we promised not to leave behind... That quote-unquote hard call was made as a direct result of a bunch of other wrong, bad calls, terrible decisions, foolish, idiotic decisions by the President of the United States and the team around him, including you, Jake Sullivan. You guys aren't bystanders who got handed a horrible Hand, right? Uh, Talking about, you know, the cards analogy. It's like, oh, you know, here's the deck of cards. Here's what you've got. Of course it wasn't ideal in Afghanistan. It never was. But they were not handed this timeline. And they were not required to do things the way they did it. They were not required by some outside force to leave on August 31st. They weren't. That was a choice they made to stick by it, largely because... They were so reliant on the Taliban at that point to not kill Americans. Right, there was this momentary truce. We had handed over so much control to the Taliban, including control of Kabul. Taliban reportedly in the Washington Post says this, offered us Kabul during the evacuation. We, Biden, said no. So the Taliban and their al-Qaeda allies controlled Kabul. So we were backed into a corner, a corner that we backed ourselves into with bad decisions it's not anyone else's fault that there are tens of thousands of people that we promised to get out of Afghanistan left in Afghanistan right now other than the president of the United States because of bad stupid calls that he made over the course of months including apparently not spending nearly enough time thinking about these issues clearly or hearing from people who were begging for evacuations to begin in an orderly way much sooner, months sooner than they were, before the chaos hit, before the panic set in. That's on the president. That's on guys like Jake Sullivan. And no, we don't have to be in the situation room to sit in judgment of that. We have to open our eyes and our ears and look at the results And of course we have every right to criticize. It would be insane not to. And to get indignant and sort of play this card, oh, well, you're not the ones who have to make the hard calls. These terrible decisions, these horrific choices that you made, were set up over the course of months by your own ineptitude, incompetence, and apathy. But there's one part I want to zoom in on. From that long answer, we played that almost minute-long answer from Sullivan. I want to make sure you didn't miss this part. Listen to Cut 15, the isolated portion.
3: Leadership means taking a look at the situation and asking the hard question, what is going to be in the best interests of the United States of America, those American citizens still in Afghanistan, and those Afghan allies?
2: So it would be one thing for someone like Jake Sullivan, from the comfort of the White House, To walk out to the lawn and get in front of the TV cameras and say, look, I know the president promised to get every American out. We have played you the clips over and over again. He told George Stephanopoulos, yes, we would stay. Our troops will stay as long as there are any Americans left. And then that didn't happen. We got out, in fact, a whole 24 hours early with at least hundreds, likely thousands of Americans still stranded in Afghanistan. And they made this sudden shift at the White House from don't you dare use the word stranded to, yeah, there's some stranding here. But it's not that big of a deal. People get stranded all the time. We'll hopefully muddle through this thing. Let's hope our friends, the Taliban, will live up to their obligations and our expectations or whatever. And so, concerned citizens, by the way, you're not in the situation room, so what do you know? But if you're concerned or you're upset about this. There were hard calls that had to be made, and the president decided, even though he made those promises, getting out the way we did on the Thailand that we did, ultimately was in the best interest of the United States of America, right? That would be one thing to argue. And I think we could have a very vociferous argument about that. Is it really in the best interests of our nation, our prestige, our honor, our credibility, our perception among allies and enemies alike, was it really in our best interest to abandon our own people and people to whom we had made a blood oath through multiple presidential promises? Is that really in the best interest of the United States? I'm not sure that's an argument the White House wants to have. I think they would keep going back to the decision to withdraw period not the way the withdrawal happens even though the president said oh they could never have been done any better the chief of staff of the white house said the same thing today no one could have managed this better nonsense that is insultingly untrue and we all know it you know it i know it he knows it they say it anyway but if that's the game they want to play they want to say look this was ultimately in the best interest and a lot of americans agree yes it was in our interests at the end of the day, to get out of Afghanistan. Been there 20 years. Most of this argument is not over that decision, although, of course, there are plenty of people who question that decision and say we could have left a residual force that had taken zero combat casualties for a year and a half. But most of this debate has been about the shambolic and disgraceful nature of the withdrawal and the shattered promises and betrayals along the way. And if they want to chalk that up to U.S. interest, be my guest. But in that clip, Sullivan goes a step further. He says it's also in the best interest, his words, in the best interest, quote, of those American citizens still in Afghanistan and those Afghan allies. I actually had to rewind the tape and make sure that I heard him correctly. Jake Sullivan, Biden's national security advisor, is actually out there saying, and this is now the White House line, I've seen headlines about this, the White House talking point is that stranding and abandoning American citizens, American permanent residents, and American allies in Afghanistan, which is now controlled by terrorist organizations, that decision to strand them, to break the promise made to them, is in fact in their best interest, not just of the country at large, not just looking at the big picture. They actually want us to believe that stranding and abandoning and leaving behind in a Taliban and Al-Qaeda-controlled country with a huge ISIS presence, leaving Americans and allies behind, allies who are being hunted and killed, was actually in the best interest of the stranded. So think about the evolution of the talking points. And this happened in in the span of days. Jen Psaki waved her finger at Peter Doocy. Don't you call them stranded. It's irresponsible to call these people stranded. We're getting them out. Biden said over and over again, we're going to get you out. Yes. When asked, yes or no, point blank question, yes, we're going to get them out. Will you leave American troops to get American citizens out? Yes. Then that didn't happen. Then you have the Pentagon spokesman saying, well, people get stranded all the time. And the National Security Advisor has the temerity to go on television and say, in fact, the people that we left behind and stranded, we did so because that's in their best interests." I am gobsmacked that they're saying this. I cannot believe this is actually their argument. As for the Taliban... And their behavior, as Jen Psaki was just talking about when we dipped into the live press conference moments ago. The expectations that we have set for the Taliban or whatever this gibberish is. Let's get an update on that when we come back. Because the BBC has a blood-curdling report out of Afghanistan about what's happening. Let's talk about the Taliban's behavior. Let's think about if it's really in the best interests of our allies to still be stranded there. I wonder if Jake Sullivan would truly believe it's in the best interest of Jake Sullivan to be stuck in Afghanistan if Jake Sullivan were stranded in Afghanistan. I tend to think not. It's easier to say that from the North Lawn of the White House. Jake. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back.
1: Energetic. Informed. Fast-paced. Guy Benson Show.
2: Back here on The Guy Benson Show, thank you very much for listening. So in the previous segment, we heard a bit from the White House talking more about the Taliban and their expectations and how they'll be judged by their behavior, and the White House National Security Advisor actually saying that it's in the best interest of the stranded Americans and allies to have been left in Afghanistan under the circumstances. He said that. That's a White House talking point now. Let's check in on the Taliban. BBC News. Amid violent reprisals, Afghans fear the Taliban's so-called amnesty was empty. The story talks about the moderate image being portrayed to the world and talked about in Washington, D.C. But, quote, there is growing evidence that the reality on the ground is different from the rhetoric. Including a spate of revenge killings. Sources inside Afghanistan as well as some who recently fled, have told BBC that the Taliban fighters are searching for and allegedly killing people they pledged they would leave in peace. Who's surprised? Here's a quote. They haven't stopped killing. A few days ago, they killed 12 members of the... Special forces in Kandahar, three soldiers in Jalalabad as well. They were my close friends. I was in touch with them. The Taliban took them out of their homes and shot them. End quote. That's how it's going. Thoughts, Biden administration. Jonathan
1: Goldberg up next.
2: Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnews.podcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.
1: Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
2: Thanks for listening to The Guy Benson Show, our website, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast's always free there. Joining us now is Jonah Goldberg, editor-in-chief of TheDispatch.com and a Fox News contributor, fellow at AEI, and his latest book is Suicide of the West. Jonah, good to have you back. Always great to be here, my friend. Well, just big-picture thoughts from you. I know you have an essay out talking about a defeat of choice in Afghanistan. You've seen the withdrawal go the way that it has. You've seen the president and his administration spin it the way they have, and the speech yesterday from Biden in particular. Before we get into any of the specifics, what's your analysis of what we have all just witnessed these last few weeks? Uh,
4: I... I'm hard-pressed to think of a more deliberately embarrassing spectacle in modern American history. Um, I go from, uh, you know, rage to disgust to just deep sadness about it for the country, for the people we've left behind, um, for the choices that we didn't have to make. And I think, you know, uh, scoring this purely on political terms kind of, is too is, is a little tawdry, given the stakes of all of this, but it's sort of, you know, it, this is the life we have chosen. And I think that Joe Biden, at every step of the way, has gotten not just the facts wrong, but the tone and the tenor of this completely wrong. He was, um, he's been dismissive, he's been argumentative, he's been defensive. Um, when it called for the opposite, he has been... Um, angry when, um, and, and boastful when he should have been humble and, um, and sad. And he's been sad when he should have been angry, as of when the when 13 American service members were killed. I think he's just gotten this wrong at almost every phase of it, and I think it's in part because he is married to an argument that he had in the Obama White House 10 years ago, and he refuses to acknowledge... That the facts that supported that argument um, to his satisfaction ten years ago just simply no longer apply anymore, and so he is he is trying to impose his theory um, like a square peg into a round hole on on the the reality of the situation, and it's 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 deeply depressing to me.
2: In his speech, he called it an extraordinary success. This mission, the evacuation, the withdrawal an extraordinary success, and he is arguing explicitly, as is the White House, that this could not have been executed better. It could not have been managed better, and the critics just have it all wrong.
5: Here's part of what he said in cut three. Listen. I take responsibility for the decision. Now some say we should have started mass evacuation sooner, and couldn't this have have been done in a more orderly manner? I respectfully disagree. Imagine if we'd begun evacuations in June or July, bringing in thousands of American troops and evacuating more than 120,000 people in the middle of a civil war. There still would have been a rush to the airport, a breakdown in confidence and control of the government, and it still would have been a very difficult and dangerous mission
2: Jonah, he's basically saying his hands were tied. It couldn't have done, it couldn't have gone any better. It could not have been more orderly. Imagine if we had gotten more people out sooner. I actually can't imagine that. There were people begging him to do it. We had multiple airfields. We had Bagram. We had all sorts of ways to do this in a much more competent way. The choice was made not to do it, while he himself was saying that. Even after the withdrawal, Afghanistan was going to be stable. Things were going to be okay. It was highly unlikely that the Taliban was going to take over the whole country. The Secretary of State said our embassy was going to remain open. We're going to have a robust diplomatic presence. They were saying that things were going to be okay in Afghanistan. Obviously, they were dreadfully wrong about that. He also pledged an orderly sensible withdrawal, and now he's saying we could have never achieved an orderly or sensible withdrawal. It just, I don't know, aside from a few hardcore partisans, maybe Biden believes it himself, I don't know. But I don't know many people who can look at what we've seen for the last two or three weeks and said, well, the United States of America could not have done any better in any facet of this. It, its I keep coming back to the word insulting because it is so Deeply insulting that they expect us to believe that or accept that line from them,
4: yeah, look, I mean I, I, I'm totally with you. you know he, he He said you know he told the people in Afghanistan, don't panic because the government's going to last a long time, and then he mocked the people who didn't get out earlier um, and for for staying too long because they took him at his word. Um, you know he blames the Afghan military for refusing to fight without ever acknowledging that by withdrawing the logistics, the air support, the the contractors who who maintain and help make the Afghan Air Force work, um, and by closing Bagram, that he sent the signal to the Afghan military that, you know, they couldn't function. I mean, literally the Afghan military, and this this is an indictment of the Pentagon to some extent, was trained to operate as a force multiplier of the United States. And so then you take the United States out of the equation, and it's just simply not organized to function as a standalone army. And maybe it should have, and maybe part of a a more reasonable withdrawal plan would have been to prepare the army for this eventuality. They gave the the Afghan army no preparation. They gave the American army no preparation. They bugged out of Bagram in the dead of night. What kind of signal did that send? Before the evacuations,
2: before the withdrawal,
4: yeah, and look. They they sparked a panic, and then they mocked people for panicking. Um, and at every turn, he says, "You know, we planned this. You know, this was perfect." But the 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 way this thing unfolded contradicted what he said was the plan. So how can it be? You know, that they planned all of this when what they were saying was the plan didn't actually happen. It's 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 it, it's just so insulting to the intelligence. And you know, you don't have to like say. I think Biden, you know, you know, is uh, is lying right now. All you have to do is saying, you cannot reconcile the truthful statements he said a week ago or two weeks ago or on July eighth with the statements he made yesterday because he keeps changing his description of reality. To take the moment, it's very easy to get an A on a test if you go into it knowing that whatever you end up putting on paper will be counted as perfect. And that's basically what he's done. He's screwed up at almost every turn. And then, like Bart Simpson making a mess, said, I meant to do that. It's it's galling to me. Yeah, and-
2: it's a huge amount of re- revisionism is the word that comes to mind over and over again. And then he sort of sneers and shouts at anyone who notices. It's like, oh, well, you know, these critics don't know what's happening. Well, some of the critics were pleading with the Biden administration to take the withdrawal more seriously much sooner To do it in a competent way, they made proactive decisions not to do so with happy talk in public. And now they're sort of saying, oh, but none of that was ever going to be true. The other thing, Jonah, that I want to get your reaction to is, and this sort of dovetails off of the conversation as well. If it was never going to be logistically possible to get all of our people out and all the people that we promised we would save out, He didn't have to make that promise to them. He did. He made it over and over again. He made it in June. He made it in August. He made it just days before he then broke the promise. And so, I mean, you can't make a solemn promise about a life and death issue to tens of thousands of people. And then when you break the promise as President of the United States, in a very overt way, turn around and just say – you know, oh well, the critics were wrong, saying that we could have done this. You know, started sooner or done this better. That betrayal to me is something that has been eating at me every single day of this.
4: Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, he is—he taking a mocking tone for people who take him, who took him at his word weeks and months ago. That he was telling the truth, and now he's—it's sort of like that line from Animal House, which I'll PGify. You know, you screwed up. You trusted me. You know, I mean, it, it, it is it is galling to me that he can make these promises and then mock people for thinking that he could have kept his promises, and that's essentially the upshot of what he did yesterday and what he's been doing all along. And and look, I mean, neither of us are generals or military strategists, but you know, I've talked to a lot of experts about all this kind of stuff. I was against withdrawal. I thought the Trump policy was bad. I think all this talk about forever wars is nonsense. But if you're gonna withdraw, the smart way to withdraw would be to do it in winter because in winter, the Taliban, they go back to their, their bases in Pakistan. They mm-hmm. hang out there to ride out the winter and then come spring, they wait until they get their, their heroin crops in and then they go back to the, the fighting in the summer. If you had just simply delayed this six months, you could have at least had the time you at least could have delayed if if this was going to be inevitable you could have delayed it long enough to let people plan accordingly and say oh my gosh i don't think the government's going to hold but at least the taliban aren't surrounding the city
2: and right, could you could have, have d- you could have done it in city. stages right with the evacuation you could have done it in stages you didn't have to give up your most important strategic airbase before a massive airlift was going to be required it's like every single step of it was Not only the wrong call, but like insanely wrong. And you don't have to be a general or sitting in the situation room of the White House or, you know, knowing the very latest analysis or assessments of the CIA to look at this and say a lot of this looks like completely incompetent, derelict madness. And one of the lines that we're now hearing, and I addressed this in the opening monologue, Joan, I'd like to get your reaction to it. Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, He said something on Good Morning America that took my breath away. Here's the short clip of it. He had a longer version as well. But listen with me to cut 15.
3: Leadership means taking a look at the situation and asking the hard question, what is going to be in the best interests of the United States of America, those American citizens still in Afghanistan and those Afghan allies?
2: Jonah, he's arguing that the decision to pull out by the deadline, in fact, 24 hours before the Taliban deadline, breaking the promise and leaving Americans and Afghan allies behind, he said that's not only in the best interests of the United States, broadly speaking, it is also in the best interests of the people that we have left behind. They, the White House said, You were not supposed to say that any Americans are stranded. That was a few weeks ago. And now they're saying, actually, the stranded people are lucky that they're stranded, because given the circumstances, it's in their best interest for us to have left them behind. After the president promised not to leave them behind, I genuinely cannot fathom who came up with the idea to send people out on national television and say that the Americans who are still in Afghanistan, hundreds or thousands of them, A it's sort of their own fault because they didn't heed some warnings that were contradicted by the president and the secretary of state and b it's actually if you think about it in their best interest that we left them behind what yeah no look i mean again when he talked to george stephanopoulos
4: what two weeks ago he said we're gonna get every single american we're gonna get every single afghan ally we're gonna do it and then two weeks later he's saying come on man you know no one ever thought you could get all these people out and you know and 90 percent. Hey, that's pretty good and and now it's, you know, hey, it's, it's for your benefit that you're stuck there with the Taliban. <laughs> it's, it, 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 to me, what it is, it's, it, what is a sign of, other than Biden's stubbornness and fixation on a goal, regardless of any attempt to do the implementation of, of the strategy to achieve that goal, put all that aside, what, this, what we're really in now is these guys are in pure news cycle management mode. And they think if they can just give people enough sort of permission to think, OK, I don't need to think about this anymore, they can then move on to some news cycle. And they're just brazening it out until they can get through it. And they think people will forget. And they may be right, which would depress me greatly. But the the, the larger strategic reality here is that this isn't over. We're still going to get reports about Americans in there. We're still going to get reports. You know, we basically have the equivalent of the Iranian hostage crisis on steroids here, because there are going to be stories about people trapped in there coming out for a long time. It would not shock me at all, if eventually the Taliban start holding press conferences showing crowds of Americans with their passports saying, open up the spigot of, of World Bank money and all the rest if you want these people to get out alive. And it's just appalling um, that that this is that this passes for a serious argument in a serious country and it spells the death i mean the true death of anything like liberal idealism or liberal internationalism as a serious view of foreign policy that's just over now
2: and i suspect and it's been hinted at now a few different times if they did start basically demanding ransom for stranded americans seems like we're pretty inclined to pay the ransom and, yeah, no. I mean, but we, we, whenever I hear about them having that, we have leverage. We have leverage.
4: They keep saying we have enormous leverage. What they're really saying is we have the ability to pay ransom for the people who are left behind. That's what they're saying. It's that this is. I mean, like the, you know, I, I spent 20 years as you know in poly, My first 20 years in politics, I kept hearing liberals talking about how outrageous it was that Reagan allegedly traded arms for hostages and whatnot. We're now talking about. The mother of all trading arms for hostages. This is basically, we're telegraphing to the Taliban. We can do all sorts of things for you if you let us get all the people we failed to keep our promises to. And there's no way the Taliban is going to honor that for the Afghans that we made promises to. They might be Americans.
2: Yeah, no, the Afghans are already dying. And we read a story from BBC near the top of the show, detailing some of the massacres and uh, executions and assassinations that are already happening now, while the Taliban, as our colleague Jennifer Griffin has said, are sort of been on their best behavior recently. Even in their best behavior, they're hunting down and killing people who helped us, and we know that there are tens of thousands of them that we left behind, and it, it it is so distressing that dwelling on it for even a few hours at a time has been very rough day in and day out, but it's a lot less rough than being there, being one of those people, notwithstanding whatever the White House is trying to tell them about how it's really in their best interests to be stranded and stuck and abandoned in a country controlled by the Taliban and al-qaeda it's it's wild. Jonah Goldberg, editor in chief of the dispatch Fox News contributor appreciate your time today, Jonah We'll have you back soon. Thanks man good to talk to you. Guy Banson show rolling on next.
1: A fresh take on the biggest stories of the day. It's Guy Benson. Fox Nation presents Podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak.
0: I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you download your podcasts.
2: It's the Guy Benson Show. Earlier today on CNN, retired Major General, I should say retired Major General Dana Pittard offered some commentary and asked a question, sort of a rhetorical question. There's not a rhetorical answer, though. Listen to Cut 13.
4: The way they were drawn was was very close to being an abandonment. Um, and then after doing that, then figuring out, oh, we got to go back and, uh, and evacuate American citizens and the Afghans that helped us. Why wasn't that a part of the plan all along? And who, who approved
2: that? Who approved that, he wonders. There's a chain of command. I'm sure there are many people who ultimately had to approve some of these specifics after they were to return to the analogy backed into a corner by demands and pronouncements from the president of the United States. But ultimately, who approved it? Joseph Biden. Commander in chief, President of the United States. This is all his. It's on him. And it's not a mystery. Brett Baer, upcoming on The Guy Benson Show.
1: From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show.
2: It's a new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Welcome on in. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast. Still to come in the next hour. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, will be with us here on the show. Fox News alert as we begin our middle hour. The Dow closes down 48 points today, ending this Wednesday at 35,312. We now welcome back to the show Brett Baier, chief political anchor at Fox News, also host of Special Report every weeknight at 6 p.m. on Fox News Channel. His podcast is Brett Baier's All-Star Panel. He's a best-selling author with another bestseller forthcoming, coming out in October, entitled The Rescue, or rather To Rescue the Republic, Ulysses S. Grant, The Fragile Union, and the Crisis of 1876. It's available for pre-order right now wherever books are sold. At Brett Bayer on Twitter. Brett, good to have you back. Hey, God. Well, let's try to dive into the last few news cycles that we've all watched together here on Afghanistan. The president, in his speech yesterday, mentioned a number of different things, including this statistic in Cut 17. Listen.
5: Now we believe that about 100 to 200 Americans remain in Afghanistan with some intention to leave. The bottom line, 90% of Americans in Afghanistan who wanted to leave, were able to leave. And for those remaining Americans, there is no deadline. We remain committed to get them out if they want to come out. So, Brett, a few things here. I've always found the if-they-want-to-leave
2: formulation to be a bit of a strange one. And he was kind of taking this victory lap in this defiant speech, saying, well, 90% of Americans... That want to leave. We believe 90% of them got out. We think there's a few hundred left, low hundreds. Number one, I'm not really sure if there's any clarity or transparency about where those numbers and percentages come from. Number two, the White House has now made a correction today, a clarification saying he meant to say 98% of Americans got out, not 90%. He said 90%. I'm not really sure. That parsing of the numbers is really the debate that the White House wants to be having. What percentage of Americans did they leave behind when the president (laughs) said on national television they were going to leave none of them behind and would keep troops on the ground until they weren't left behind and then left anyway?
6: They're having a real problem on messaging, let alone math. Um, We don't know the the number, and I agree with you, the transparency here about – what that number is, I think, is has um, is, is not been good. The president, you know, came off as defensive in that speech. And you're right. If you're quibbling about uh, the percentage of Americans left on the ground, you're focusing on the Americans left on the ground. And, uh, you know, let alone, we're talking here about Americans and whatever the number is, 100, 200, 250, you've got thousands and thousands of afghans who helped the u.s through 20 years of war who also are on the ground in fact the state department today conceded that the majority of siv special immigrant visa holders did not get out and are still in afghanistan the majority so i just think that this whole thing is um, we're learning more and more every day you have journalists left on the ground, from Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty. Uh, You have, um, and now stories from the BBC down in Kandahar saying that there are executions going on of Afghan National Army uh, troops. It's, you know, we could see a real tragedy happening right before our eyes in Afghanistan.
2: I mean, we already are, right? The the deaths have begun. I'd say that The SIVs, excuse me, are probably the people in the gravest danger of being summarily executed. It's why we made this pact with them, this promise, you've helped us, we're going to help you. And then we didn't. A large majority of them are still there. Tens of thousands of people. And we can talk about whether it's 40,000 or 80,000, it's tens of thousands. New York Times reported yesterday that among the Americans left on the ground are thousands likely of green card holders and permanent residents, the administration doesn't include those Americans in their tabulation that they talk to us about publicly about Americans left on the ground, U.S. citizens, and even that number in the hundreds seems to be built on math that has never really been explained. And Brett, at the top of the show, I played a soundbite and I'm trying to get the reaction of all of our guests today to this soundbite. It didn't really get Quite the attention that I expected that it might. Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor for President Biden, went on Good Morning America. And in Cut 15, he said this about the decision to leave Afghanistan, all of our troops out, even with Americans and others still stranded. Listen.
3: Leadership means taking a look at the situation and asking the hard question, what is going to be in the best interests of the United States of America, those American citizens still in Afghanistan and those Afghan allies?
2: Brett, he's arguing explicitly that leaving when we did the way we did was not only in the best interests of the United States of America writ large, it is in the best interests of the Americans and Afghans that we left behind. The. Jen, Jen Saki at the White House not long ago upbraided our colleague, Peter Ducey for using the word stranded. And within a matter of days, we have the National Security Advisor saying, well, yes, there are stranded people there. And actually, it's in their best interests to be stranded there. I, I'm, I cannot believe that they are saying this.
6: Yeah, I mean, they may want to talk to those people who are desperately trying to hide and stay in safe houses. From everything we're hearing on the ground, um, I, I agree with you, guy. I think this administration has talked about it so many different ways. Um, the other day, uh, you had officials at the Pentagon saying, "Well, people get stranded in countries all the time, and we you know, we get <laughs> get them out. I mean, this it's really amazing if you think about it if if we have ever left anybody behind like this in this way, um, I, I don't recall it in history. And I, I think that, you know, a lot of people say this is all going to go away and it's not, you know, it's a chapter and we're going to close the chapter as a, as a country as far as dealing with this and the focus on it. I do think, Guy, that this one lingers because of uh, the credibility issue and mm-hmm. the confidence issue that uh, Biden ran on as a candidate.
2: Yeah, just the, the weakness, the callousness the incompetence, and then to tell us over and over again, as if it's going to finally convince people, it could not have been done better. This is as well as it could have gone. And I would venture to say almost no Americans believe that. And I mean, the polling bears it out. There's polling that shows, you know, 80 plus percent of Americans said we shouldn't have all of our troops out until all the Americans who are on the ground are out. And then they did that anyway. And for them to with a straight face try to persuade the american people through assertion that no one could have done it any better and it just simply wasn't possible i I just don't think that's going to fly and whether afghanistan itself you know lingers and the residue of this shame continues on into the midterm election cycle i have no idea but i think what we're all seeing and feeling it, it doesn't go away and it's going to it's going to be at least part of the calculus, even if it's subconscious or you know embedded into the decision of many voters. Uh, it, it is a big, big data point, and as you say, it it really could get worse for a lot of people yeah, who were there. Just
6: just the images that are going to come out of Afghanistan and what we see of the real Taliban. You know, I, I think it's going to revert to uh, what we know of the Taliban in the past, and we're already hearing stories of that. And and I, I think that, you know, when we get the stories of really behind the scenes, how these people are surviving after being left, um, I think it's going to be heart-wrenching. And it's going to be a lot of focus on the days and weeks that led up to this and why we didn't know or weren't prepared. And this Reuters story about the conversation between President Biden and President Ghani, yes. where he essentially says, you know, even if it isn't that way, make it look that way. That the Taliban is losing, um, they know. You know, as early as May—that's July—but as early as May, they know that the provinces are going one by one, and um, and they weren't ready.
2: Although he said in the speech yesterday, we were prepared, and we couldn't have started these evacuations any earlier. I mean, it's 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 incoherent. It's insulting to our collective intelligence, and it has to be just beyond galling and heart wrenching for the people who are actually impacted by it, whose lives are now in extreme danger in Afghanistan, whether they're U.S. citizens, U.S. permanent residents, or Afghan allies who believed us. They took us at our word for years, and now they might be dragged out of their homes and killed by the Taliban. And we're reading uh, stories and anecdotes about that happening across the country. Brett, I do want to ask you sort of a, a question about covering all of this. You were... Pentagon correspondent at Fox News earlier in your career, that position is now filled extremely ably and capably by Jennifer Griffin, who's just been, I think, invaluable in our coverage throughout all of this. Between the two of you, there's a lot of uh, institutional knowledge there, uh, you know, regional knowledge as well over, you know, in, in Afghanistan and that region. And as you reflect on this war and this conflict from its very beginning, 20 years ago, to now, I just wonder, you know, thinking about your own coverage, uh, Jennifer and some of the other members of the team, just if you have any reflections, having had this interesting sort of front row seat, at least from a coverage perspective, to this longest war in U.S. history at each step of the way, now that it is at least ostensibly, technically over.
6: Yeah. Well, first of all, Jennifer uh, Griffin and Lucas Thomas at the Pentagon have really but done extraordinary work, as you as you said, and uh, nonstop. Uh, my reflections my reflections are this: 19 years, eight months ago, I landed on in a C-17 with then Defense Secretary Rumsfeld and a number of reporters uh, at Bagram Air Base. And we were met at the plane by a group of Northern Alliance fighters who were armed to the teeth, uh, and we didn't know what what to expect when we got off that plane. They told us to stay on the tarmac so that we didn't walk where the landmines potentially were just outside uh, the tarmac itself. from that point, I traveled all over afghanistan and in different ways uh, and and guide the stories there really are amazing what the u s military was able to do. You know we weren't about nation building, but in the essence, we were. And there were you know twenty year old captains of of an army uh, uh, Battalion and uh, or unit and and they go into a village and they would suddenly you know provide water, build a school, um, get the village operational. Uh, and it, the the fact that all of these people did all of this stuff, there's a lot of you know criticism about all of the meandering of the mission. But to see what actually happened. And um, to, to see how that country changed from respecting women, uh, it, it really was amazing over the years. And now to see it kind of come to an end like this is, is fairly painful. And you know um, that the people who served there are feeling that, too. And, and that's why we have to make sure we are grateful and thankful uh, and say it uh, to mm-hmm. everybody who
2: served. That's right. That's right. And I saw a report this morning that there's been a really big uptick in calls to suicide hotlines uh, and support lines among Afghan veterans over these last few weeks. And I mean, it's not hard to connect the dots. Why? Right. If you see what you fought for falling apart and even worse, you see the people who who either fought with you or trained with you or supported you all along the way as you told them every day, you're our friends, we've got your back, and then that covenant is broken. Survivor guilt is already a phenomenon for a lot of people who've served you know, in, in hot spots and in battle. There's another component of this as well out there that we aren't necessarily talking too much about, which is how these images and these developments on the ground are going to impact the people who served for all of these many years in Afghanistan. I think that's a really important point. Last word to you, Brad. Yeah.
6: Well, I just think uh, you know the suicide lines are lighting up, and uh, if anybody feels those... Feelings uh, uh, to get help and to reach out, and and if you're somebody who knows somebody that's going through a tough time, you got to be active because this is a really hard time to see all of this come to an end like this, especially with all those people threatened on the ground. Fortunately, the people we worked with um, were able to get out, um, but there's many others who um, were connected to interpreters of media organizations and the military that are still going from safe house to safe house. house.
2: Brett Baier is chief political anchor at Fox News. Special Report, which he anchors, airs every night at 6 p.m. Eastern time on Fox News Channel. You can check out his podcast, Brett Baier's All-Star Panel, and his book, coming October, is available for pre-order right now. It's To Rescue the Republic. Ulysses S. Grant, The Fragile Union, and the Crisis of 1876. Brett will be watching tonight. Appreciate your time as always. All right, Guy. Have a good one. Brett Bayer on The Guy Benson Show, and we'll be right back.
1: The Guy Benson Show. More next. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News.
2: I'm Guy Benson here on The Guy Benson Show. Mitch McConnell coming up in our next hour. Brett Baier and I in that last segment made a few different references to some of these reports about the Taliban being the Taliban, including a BBC report, which I quoted from earlier in the show. And I want to be not vague, but specific. There is a Wall Street Journal piece out this afternoon. Quote from Executing Rivals... To restricting women's rights, the new Taliban in Afghanistan look a lot like the old Taliban. And despite initial displays of tolerance, the country's new rulers are already showing that they are who we thought they were. I'm paraphrasing that last part. There are reports of artists being dragged from their homes and killed. People who served in the Afghan military or police being dragged out of their homes and killed. People trying to hunt them down, threatening family members. Where's your father? Where's your son? There's this story from the UK Daily Mail, which is just horrifying, but if you're a member of the LGBTQ community and you talk a lot about the rights of our community... And you blow any small transgression, even about pronouns or something, up like it's, it's some giant hate crime. Here's a story about actual oppression. A gay man raped and beaten by the Taliban in Kabul after he was duped into meeting them. A gay man in hiding in Afghanistan. He's been hiding since the Taliban took over, trying to get out. Islamist fighters tricked him, posing as a friend who could help him escape. When the man showed up, he was ambushed, he was beaten, he was raped. He was outed to his family as a form of shame. God knows what's going to happen to him. And the Daily Mail writes this, It's just the latest Taliban atrocity, despite the group's claim to be more moderate. They are closing girls' schools in Afghanistan. There is a lot of profound ugliness yet to come in that country. Some of it would be unavoidable no matter how we got out. Some of it was absolutely avoidable. And the wages, I fear for many, will be death. And some of that's on us. It's the Guy Benson Show.
1: It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hemmer takes you one on one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to FoxNewsPodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson.
2: It is the Guy Benson Show. Halfway through the program today, glad to have you here every weekday. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, guybensonshow.com for the free podcast. In case you missed it earlier, there's this new Wall Street Journal story out today getting shared pretty widely. Headline, majority of interpreters and other U.S. visa applicants were left behind in Afghanistan. U.S. still doesn't have reliable data on who was evacuated from Afghanistan. That according to senior State Department officials. And I saw people starting to tweet this out and circulate it. And my initial response was, obviously, yes, we knew this already. NBC News has a report that of the SIV allies, right, the special immigrant visa holders and applicants who have spent, in many cases, years helping the United States, drivers, interpreters, etc. in Afghanistan, including Mohammed, the man we told you about yesterday, who was quoted in the Wall Street Journal begging the White House, begging President Biden for help as he is in hiding in Afghanistan from the Taliban along with his family and his children? He helped rescue Joe Biden as a senator in 2008. Biden talked about the experience, used it as campaign fodder to dazzle audiences about his experience on foreign policy. That man is one of the many who has been left behind, and NBC News, to pick up that thread, reported earlier that approximately 8,500 of the SIVs were evacuated out of Afghanistan amid the 120,000, the big number that the White House likes to boast about. In some ways, it is logistically impressive. We're grateful to the men and women who made that happen, but the prioritization was almost non-existent for a lot of it, and it was just total chaos. And as a result, a little over 8,000 of the SIVs, we believe, got out, leaving tens of thousands stranded and abandoned in Afghanistan, where the Taliban, we know, is searching for them. And the numbers are in flux. I've read 40 to 50,000. I've read in the ballpark of 60,000. Some reports as high as 80,000 of these SIVs and their families were left behind. And some of those figures have been disputed. But let's just say, for the sake of argument and for the sake of this conversation, that the number is somewhere between 40 and 80,000. If we got 8,500 of them out, that would mean that tens of thousands, right, at least in the high 30,000, at least in the high 30,000s, potentially all the way up into the 70,000s, these people have been left behind after the president promised them over and over again that we would get them out. After the United States made a promise to them, sort of this pledge over the course of years, that we would reward them for their loyalty to us and the help that they furnished our troops, our diplomats, our people on the ground. And now they need that promise to have been kept. It's literally about life and death for them. And for tens of thousands the promise is now shattered into a thousand pieces. So when the Wall Street Journal reports today that the State Department is conceding that a majority of the interpreters and others were left behind, to me, if anything, that undersells what actually happened. That is an understatement of the stark, horrifying, infuriating reality. Even if we use the most charitable numbers that we can come up with and estimates, A vast majority of these allies were left behind, not just a majority. Here's the story in the journal. The U.S. left behind the majority of Afghan interpreters and others who applied for visas to flee Afghanistan, a senior State Department official said on Tuesday, despite frantic efforts to evacuate those at risk of Taliban retribution in the final weeks of the airlift. The U.S. still doesn't have reliable data on all of this. Quote, I would just say it's the majority of them, the official said just based on anecdotal information about the populations we were able to support. Again, if anything, this is positive spin. Imagine the headline saying that we left a majority of these people behind in Afghanistan being the positive spin, when the reality is we left the overwhelming majority of them behind. And because the planning was so terrible, because the logistics were not there, Notwithstanding what the president claimed yesterday in his speech, one of the more embarrassing things that he said, that this was an extraordinary success and it was because of careful planning and we were ready. He said, we were ready for all this. No, they were not. Don't insult our intelligence. You weren't ready. You weren't even close to ready, sir. The White House Chief of Staff, Ron Klain, on TV this morning saying, no one could have managed this better. Nonsense. I actually want to say... BS, that feels like the appropriate term to use, the real word, because it's such transparent BS. No one could have done this better. Get out of here. We don't believe that. You're not going to gaslight us. The United States of America could absolutely have done much, much better than what we've seen under this president and this incredible failure. If it had been planned even partially well, slightly better. There would have been a hierarchy. American citizens, legal American residents, who we also consider Americans, SIV holders and applicants and their families, and then other potential refugees in that order. Instead, out of the 120,000 that we got out, more than 100,000 of them, approximately, the estimate is, were among the final group on that totem pole that I just mentioned. When you had hundreds, probably thousands of Americans left behind and tens of thousands of SIV holders left behind. They got it completely backwards because there was this ruinous, insane, mad rush in a panic at the very end. There's a quote here in the Wall Street Journal back to the story. Including family members of the SIVs, as many as 100,000 Afghans may be eligible for relocation. I'm sure they feel great about being eligible the eligibility should have mattered within the last few months, not now, after we're gone. Quote, everybody who lived it is haunted by the choices we had to make and by the people we were not able to help, the official said. And by the way, they had to make these choices the way they made those choices because of the President of the United States and his policy. And when the official says that they were not able to help a lot of people, it's because the United States from the top chose not to help them. Which brings me to a Twitter thread that was brought to my attention yesterday. I amplified it. Matt Zeller runs a group called No One Left Behind, and he has been fanatically committed to trying to get precisely these Afghans out of the country so that they won't be targeted and murdered by the enemy. This has been his passion project. He's been all over it, not just for months, but for years. He feels a special debt to them, and he's done everything that he possibly can on this front. We actually played some audio of him when he appeared on MSNBC reacting to a recent Biden speech saying he felt like he watched a totally different speech when listening to the analysis of the very slanted pro-Biden anchors over at MSNBC talking about the precipitous withdrawal, the chaotic withdrawal, and the likelihood at the time that so many of these people would be abandoned in Afghanistan. This was a thread that he posted, Matt Zeller, back in March. Right. So this wasn't sort of a last-minute, hey, we might be in some trouble here. This was months ago, a few months after Joe Biden took office, And a few weeks before, Joe Biden announced his final decision in April to get the United States military fully out of Afghanistan. By this deadline. August the 31st. So again, this was what he was tweeting. And he was tagging the president. And we know that he was doing everything he possibly could, pulling every string that he could, along with his allies, along with other people in this movement, trying to get in front of the president, trying to get in front of the people in the administration who are making the decisions. They couldn't. They ran into brick wall after brick wall. The administration, the president, wouldn't listen to them, wouldn't hear them. And there's a very real human toll resulting from those decisions. But on March 26th, Matt Zeller tweeted at the president, at the secretary of state, and the secretary of defense. And he was linking to a piece in The Atlantic called A Debt of Honor. Subheadline The U.S. Must Fulfill Its Responsibilities to the Afghans Who Put Their Trust and Lives in American Hands. So this was a piece he was linking to back in March. Here's what he said There is a train crash coming. We can all see it. The train is going to derail and crash into a village. We may have time to evacuate the village, but only if we start right now. The same holds true in Afghanistan. Hashtag save them. He goes on. If we abandon our wartime allies, they will be murdered by the very people we ask them to help us fight. When the Taliban kill our interpreters, engineers, aid workers, laborers, They use their deaths as a warning message to what befalls America's friends. He quoted from this Atlantic story. This broke me. Quote, the words that the gunman yelled, this was as they were murdering people who helped us. Where are the American forces to save you? Where are their helicopters? Where are their airplanes? You're an infidel, a traitor. You helped them for a decade. Where are they now? This was as the Taliban was taunting people who helped us, our allies, as they targeted and murdered them. Before we abandoned them. While we still had people on the ground. Zeller's thread continues. Collapse is coming in Afghanistan. Listen to how prescient he is. This is a man who is not given the time of day by the Biden administration, as he was shouting from the rooftops till he was blue in the face, begging for people to pay attention, begging for them to adjust our policy accordingly. He wrote in March, collapse is coming in Afghanistan. When it happens, it will happen faster than D.C. can respond. This isn't Vietnam. There isn't an ocean to put people on boats. We aren't the Soviets. We don't have the luxury of driving north under a ceasefire. We are going to have to fly out, likely under fire. There are four, maybe five airfields that can handle the kind of lift it will take in Afghanistan. When the bleep hits the fan, our wartime allies and their families are going to be the last priority for who or what gets space on the scarce last flights out of Dodge. We need to begin that evacuation now while there is still time, Zeller wrote back in March. We have very little time. Fighting season is nearly upon us in Afghanistan. We have a deadline to withdraw. Our troops' collapse is coming. We have to act now. Hashtag save them. Talk about haunting. He was exactly right. He was exactly right. When the bleep hits the fan... The allies are going to be the last priority. Ain't that the truth? That's exactly what happened. He said when the collapse comes, it's going to happen faster than D.C. expects or can respond. Absolutely right again. He said we can get these people out. There is still time, but we have to act now. That was back in March. They didn't act in March. They didn't act in April or May or June or July. And then in mid to late August... When the collapse finally came, tens of thousands of these allies were left behind and abandoned. And many of them are now in terror, in hiding, hoping that the next knock on the door isn't the Taliban to drag them into the street and shoot them in the head, or God knows what else they'll do to them. Matt Zeller was 100% right about this, and he was ignored. Notice that he also says in the thread that there are only four or five airfields that could handle the type of airlift that we would have need over a long period of time, a long time horizon to get these people out. And then the Biden administration, of course, ignoring that as well, hemmed us into one airfield, the Kabul airport, with one usable runway at the very end with the security being run by the Taliban, having given up our huge Air Force base weeks before the evacuation. It's insane. And these people, the president, his chief of staff, they come on TV, they look at us, and they expect us to believe that we could not have done anything differently or better. What garbage. Imagine being Matt Zeller hearing those words. A stain on our national honor is what General Keene called it yesterday, and it's hard to disagree. The Guy Benson Show continues after this.
1: The Guy Benson Show. More next. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News Podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com.
2: It's the Guy Benson Show. Earlier in the week, we mentioned a jaw-dropping but revealing, quote, from the president of one of the largest teachers unions, at least one of the largest districts in the country, Los Angeles. Teachers union president in L.A., it was quoted saying that learning loss is a myth she was trying to make excuses for and somehow justify the indefensible decision to lock millions of kids out of schools for an entire school year, which is what unions and Democrats did together last year. And the harm is significant. But she said, no, it's not true. It's a myth. There's no learning loss. Plus, these kids learned about protests and social justice. They learned about the word coup and insurrection. It was like if the Babylon Bee invented a quotation from a teachers' union president. But it was very real. Well, there's new data out of the state of Connecticut, just even more data, that completely disproves her ridiculous half-baked nonsense thesis on learning loss. Quote, state test results released this week confirmed what educators and parents feared was the case. Student learning at all ages and from most backgrounds has taken a hit during the pandemic. The assessment data offers the first glimpse at how student learning fared in Connecticut during COVID-19, showing proficiency rates dropped since the 2018-2019 school year, the last time state tests were administered. Listen to this. Students who learned fully or mostly in-person last year lost the least ground, while their peers in hybrid or mostly remote models showed weaker achievement and growth. The State Education Department saw impacts in all subjects, but the greatest differences in math. And then there is a chart that shows proficiency levels among students. Students with high needs, students without high needs, students from privileged backgrounds, non-privileged backgrounds. There's a lot to look at here. But what's very clear from this chart in particular is the kids who were in the school, fully or mostly in person last year, had the best proficiency. In second place were the hybrid kids, where at least they were in classrooms sometimes. Dead last, by far, statistically significant are kids who were mostly or fully remote their proficiency levels and advancement suffered the most especially those with high needs learning loss is not a myth it is very real the data shows it and don't let anyone try to convince you otherwise for their own selfish backwards political narratives Final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. Senator Mitch McConnell, Republican leader in the upper chamber, joins me after this.
1: From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum, the host of The Story on Fox News Channel, sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.
2: Our website, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day. Happy Hour, sponsored by our friends at The Finish Long Drink, which is so good and refreshing. TheLongDrink.com is their website. It's for 21 and over only. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. You can see where they're sold near you. They're expanding. You can also order online. We are joined now by the Senate Minority Leader, Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky and Senator, it's good to have you back. Hey, glad to be with you, go I'd like to start on Afghanistan. You have, because I get your speeches and your press releases, I'm on the email list, you have been talking about Afghanistan and warning about withdrawal and certain elements of the withdrawal, not for weeks, But for months throughout the entire Biden presidency and indeed back into the previous presidency as well, as you have watched everything unfold at the end of August and now into September, as the Biden administration have uh, has collectively pulled out of Afghanistan with the mess that we've watched. I wonder what your thoughts are and your overall analysis of the results of the policy and the planning or the lack thereof.
7: Well, I think I would start by saying the war hasn't ended. It's just become more difficult for us to prosecute. The terrorist threat in Afghanistan is already greater than it was before this rash decision to withdraw. It will continue to grow. And our capacity to counter it has been dramatically diminished. We failed to get all Americans and Afghan partners out. Hundreds of Americans and thousands of our Afghan partners are now Taliban hostages. And if that were not enough, we have shredded our credibility as a reliable partner.
2: Senator, I want to play for you a soundbite that I have played now for our previous two guests today, Jonah Goldberg and Brett Bayer. It's Jake Sullivan who is the National Security Advisor to President Biden. He appeared on Good Morning America, and among other things, he had this to say, and there's one part of it that truly was astounding to me. Listen to Cut 15.
3: Leadership means taking a look at the situation and asking the hard question, what is going to be in the best interests of the United States of America, those American citizens still in Afghanistan, and those Afghan allies?
2: senator he said that it's in the best interest of the united states of america to have left americans and allies behind but he went further saying it's also in the best interests of the stranded to have been stranded and truly i would like to know how they workshopped that talking point inside the white house
7: uh, this is the weakest set of talking points i've ever heard uh, because this withdrawal made no sense um uh, it's important to remind everybody: we had twenty five hundred troops there. Only twenty five hundred. We hadn't lost anybody in a year and a half. We lost more last Thursday, a week ago tomorrow, than in any, in any one of the previous four years. The total loss of American lives in um, Afghanistan over twenty years was about two thousand, which is very sad and regretful. But the Afghans lost sixty five thousand. Uh, We accomplished the mission. The mission, remember, was to keep the barbarians from controlling the country, the Taliban. They didn't. And to make it impossible for it to be a staging ground for another attack on the U.S. here at home. The policy was successful. And in terms of uh, financial costs, about 1% of the Pentagon budget.
2: Senator McConnell, as we see... The promise that has been broken to American citizens, to permanent residents, to allies like interpreters, tens of thousands of them who are now stranded and at the mercy, in many cases, of the Taliban. The president has given speeches, his team backing him up, saying this could not have been done any better. The execution was as good as could have been hoped or expected. Uh, The Americans who are left or stayed, as Ned Price said... In some ways, it was sort of their fault because they were warned uh, for a period of months to get out, although the president was making other assurances publicly at the time. And I know that there's a lot of people who are very, very angry about the way this happened, about uh, you know the, the violation of this covenant that we made with so many people. The president said on TV, nationally, we are not going to leave if there are American citizens still left there. And then we left with American citizens still left. Is there going to be any accountability for this? I saw that you were asked a question about impeachment. You said that's not going to happen. Some of your colleagues in the Senate have called on the president to resign. I wonder what you make of that. Should anyone from this administration resign as a result of what's happened?
7: Well, the president wanted this to happen. (laughs) You know, I don't know why. Uh, people would re- resign in the administration who simply were following the orders of the president of the United States. Now, the only thing you left out: all this an extraordinary success. It was an extraordinary success with the right. Taliban. That's who had an extraordinary success. It was a you know disgraceful and disastrous de- departure. Um, look, in terms of consequences, we are where we are. Uh, first of all, we need to increase the defense budget. The administration' uh, defense request was clearly inadequate, even before this withdrawal. We all know weakness invites challenge, so we need to go on the offense against terrorists uh, before the Taliban victory emboldens jihadists worldwide. So we need to be very, very watchful here. So this administration, having made this disastrous mistake, uh, better be prepared for the rise in terrorist threats that are coming and need to confront them in a stronger way than we've seen um, so far. And also, look, at this is a NATO mission. A lot of Americans don't realize the Germans, the French, uh, the English, they were all in there with us. Uh, They've criticized this decision as well. We need to start repairing our relationship with our allies as well.
2: On the home front, Senator McConnell, I want to ask you about a few different things. You have cut a new TV public service announcement about getting vaccinated. I know vaccinations and vaccines are very personal to you, something that uh, you have thought a lot and talked a lot about, given your experience earlier in your life. What what sort of triggered this decision at this point? Because I know you've been very good on vaccines and urging people to get vaccinated all along since the vaccines were available. Was there something in particular that drove you to cut this PSA now?
7: Well, the experience I had earlier in my life is I was a polio victim, and so I've, I've studied that disease, and I know it took probably uh, 50 years to find two vaccines that work. It has succeeded. We've largely eradicated polio in the whole world. Uh, I was thrilled at the success of developing three highly effective vaccines in less than a year, which we did as a result of Operation Warp Speed, which we funded last year, Honestly, Guy, it never occurred to me people would be reluctant to to, to take the vaccination. uh, Really? So now we have have an epidemic going on. 90% of the people in the hospitals across America and in my state are unvaccinated. The answer to this dilemma that we face, the answer to this disease, is to get vaccinated. And I hope people will begin to realize that that's the only way this ever ends.
2: Yeah, there's a a young guy that I follow on Instagram who's young and very healthy, and he posted today that he's on day 11 of a COVID infection. He said he has not been hospitalized, but the symptoms have been severe. It's been extremely unpleasant for him, and he listed probably a dozen symptoms that he's been experiencing now for over a week and a half, and he's hoping that the worst of it is over, but he's not sure yet and i asked him were you vaccinated and his answer was no and i hope that his example and, and many other examples hospitalized individuals and of course the deaths is overwhelmingly among the unvaccinated and so i'm glad that you did the psa i'm glad that you are very consistent on that point you really didn't ever imagine that there would be vaccine hesitant people no i didn't yeah i, I, I was perplexed by it and, sh- and still am uh
7: I, I gather it's picking up some as a result of not what politicians like myself may say, but because of the uh, hospitalizations, you know, make the point. I mean, there's a lot of misinformation out floating around on the Internet and in the country, but you, you, you can't argue with the fact that this resurgence is among unvaccinated
2: Americans. In your neck of the woods on Capitol Hill, there's a big fight coming on spending. The Democrats want to force through on a party-line vote through reconciliation $3.5 trillion in spending at least. I know that there's some scorekeepers who've said it could be 5 to $5.5 trillion. There's a handful of more moderate Democrats saying, we're not sure about those top-line numbers. We're not sure we want to spend that much money. But Nancy Pelosi down in the House, she's trying to figure out how to get her troops in line for this upcoming vote. Part of the discussion, of course, is the bipartisan infrastructure bill that passed out of the Senate on a pretty large bipartisan vote. You're among those Republicans who voted yes. I have a two-part question. The first, there are some conservatives who say Republicans like you shouldn't. Have voted for that bipartisan bill because you're sort of rewarding the Democrats and you're giving a patina of bipartisanship to this insane amount of spending that they are attempting to to ram through. And Republicans shouldn't put their fingerprints anywhere near any of the spending. Uh, What is your response to those critiques from the right? And then secondly, once something happens down in the House, what are your expectations about how things are going to play out on reconciliation in the Senate?
7: Well, my answer on the first is they're two entirely separate bills. They're not connected. Eighty-five percent of the Americans uh, favor infrastructure. Uh, Administrations of both parties have been trying to do this for the last decade. Uh, I felt it was time to do something for the country, even though I object to everything else the Biden administration is doing. And so the second bill, it's a totally separate bill, Is a reckless tax and spending measure, massive tax increases. You're absolutely right. Three and a half to five trillion dollars that will wreak havoc with the most productive parts of our society. Everybody's also, I think, (laughs) needs to remember that in February 2020 we had the best economy we had have had in a half a century as a result of the 2017 tax bill, this this absolutely undoes everything we did four years ago in that 30-year uh, tax reform bill. It's, it's a devastating blow to the economy, and it's not just the taxes. It's how they would spend it. Free community college, uh, free this, free that uh, in perpetuity, um, Look, Bernie Sanders may have lost the nomination, but he won the war over what today's Democratic Party is like. And as you suggested, Guy, it seems like we're down to a couple of moderate Democrats in the Senate and maybe eight or nine in the House. I pray for them every night because not a single Republican will vote for either one of. uh, will will vote for this package. And that means that Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema could either kill the whole bill, write the whole bill or buckle under pressure and
2: i hope neither of them do yeah my guess if i had to wager is that they'll pare some things down and get to a, a top line figure that's a little bit less uh, extraordinary in terms of the amount of spending we're looking at on top of all the other emergency spending that was covid related or said to be covid related over the last year plus you know three and a half to five trillion more i know Manchin and Cinema have said no go on that. We we can't do that. But maybe they'll, you know, bring it bring it a little bit down, but not all that far down, and then vote along with the party. That's that's kind of the way I'm expecting it, but it's precarious. It's a very tough balancing act with very few votes to spare, none in the Senate, as you know. And uh, Pelosi and Schumer are gonna have to figure that out. Speaking of the balance of power in the US Senate, last question from me. I saw the poll, I'm sure you saw the poll. Uh, up in New Hampshire this week with Chris Sununu in a hypothetical matchup with Senator Hassan, uh, leading by eight points head to head. He's a very known commodity in the state. She's the incumbent. For the Republicans to have a shot at retaking the Senate next year, it's, it's going to be tough. A Really tight map for both parties. Uh, everyone has been talking who follows the Senate and Senate politics closely, about New Hampshire as as a real opportunity for the GOP. I know Governor Sununu is not sold, let's put it that way, on running for Senate. Having seen that poll this week up there, uh, have you placed any additional calls or text messages to the governor of New Hampshire this week? (laughs) Well, I did
7: see the poll, and obviously we would love for the governor to run. But I think maybe an even more significant uh, poll is the uh, the, the dropping of, of joe biden's approval rating we all know that next year will be a referendum on how you feel about this administration presidential approval is the coin of the realm in these off-year elections two years into a new new administration we saw what happened to bill clinton two years in what happened to barack obama two years in donald trump lost the house two years in um, presidential approval will be the most important national poll next year. And I think all of that is a result of this uh, calamity in Afghanistan. And president's numbers were already falling. Uh, indicate that uh, the atmosphere for a very, very good election for Republicans in both the House and the Senate next year is highly likely and consistent with American history.
2: Yeah, he was falling on the economy, falling on COVID, falling on immigration, of course, another crisis that isn't over. And now Afghanistan is pouring fuel on the fire. We're watching all of it. We're covering all of it here. Senator Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the U.S. Senate, Republican of Kentucky. Always appreciate your time, sir. Looking forward to next time. Thanks, John. And we'll be right back.
1: The Guy Benson Show. More next from the fox news podcasts network i'm ben Dominich, publisher of the federalists and i'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going subscribe to the ben Dominic podcast subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.
2: back here on the guy benson show thanks for listening we just got off the air with senator mcconnell And my last question was only half-joking because I know the national Republicans would love for Chris Sununu, who's been a guest on this show, governor, sitting governor of New Hampshire, to run for that Senate seat. He would have a pretty good shot at winning it. It would be, at the very least, extremely competitive. I think he might be a slight favorite there. And that would really give a great opportunity for Republicans to expand the map a little bit. They should have an opportunity to take a Senate seat back from Raphael Warnock in Georgia or Mark Kelly in Arizona if they don't engage in a circular firing squad, which, again, is not guaranteed with the Republican Party. Nevada is another opportunity for a pickup. I saw one poll out that shows the incumbent Democrat there is in pretty... Uh, weak territory in terms of approval and some of the head-to-head numbers it's very early out there still relatively tough state but maybe doable but the GOP will be playing defense in the Senate in Wisconsin in North Carolina in Pennsylvania I mean it could be razor thin as it is right now 50-50 and the difference between 50-50 Schumer and 50-50 McConnell is a big one so you need it to be 5149 McConnell. It might start in New Hampshire. We're watching it.
1: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
2: It's the happy hour here on the Guy Benson show. Earlier in the program, we welcome back our friend and colleague Brett Baer, anchor of Special Report, Chief Political Anchor at Fox News Channel. I was on his panel last evening on TV. He hopped on the radio side with us here today. Here's part of that conversation. Well, let's try to dive into the last few news cycles that we've all watched together here on Afghanistan. The president, in his speech yesterday, mentioned a number of different things, including this statistic in Cut 17. Listen.
5: Now we believe that about 100 to 200 Americans remain in Afghanistan with some intention to leave. The bottom line... Ninety percent of Americans in Afghanistan who wanted to leave were able to leave. And for those remaining Americans, there is no deadline. We remain committed to get them out if they want to come out. So, Brett, a few things here. I've always found the if they want to
2: leave formulation to be a bit of a strange one. And he was kind of taking this victory lap in This defiant speech saying, well, 90% of Americans that want to leave, we believe 90% of them got out. We think there's a few hundred left, low hundreds. Number one, I'm not really sure if there's any clarity or transparency about where those numbers and percentages come from. Number two, the White House has now made a correction today, a clarification saying he meant to say 98% of Americans got out, not 90%. He said 90%. I'm not really sure that parsing of the numbers is really the debate that the White House wants to be having. What percentage of Americans did they leave behind when the president <laughs> said on national television they were going to leave none of them behind and would keep troops on the ground until they weren't left behind and then left anyway?
6: They're having a real problem on messaging, let alone math. Um, we don't know the the number, and I agree with you, the transparency here about – what that number is, I think, is, um, is is not been good. The president, you know, came off as defensive in that speech. And you're right. If you're quibbling about uh, the percentage of Americans left on the ground, you're focusing on the Americans left on the ground. And, uh, you know, let alone we're talking here about Americans and whatever the number is, 100, 200, 250, you've got – Thousands and thousands of Afghans who helped the U.S. through 20 years of war who also are on the ground. In fact, the State Department today conceded that the majority of SIV, special immigrant visa holders, did not get out and are still in Afghanistan. The majority. So – I just think that this whole thing is, uh, we're learning more and more every day. You have journalists left on the ground from Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty. Uh, You have, um, and now stories from the BBC down in Kandahar saying that there are executions going on of Afghan National Army uh, troops. It's, you know, we could see a real tragedy happening right before our eyes in Afghanistan.
2: I mean, we already are, right? The the deaths have begun. I'd say that The SIVs, excuse me, are probably the people in the gravest danger of being summarily executed. It's why we made this pact with them, this promise, you've helped us, we're going to help you. And then we didn't. A large majority of them are still there, tens of thousands of people. And we can talk about whether it's 40,000 or 80,000, it's tens of thousands. New York Times reported yesterday that among the Americans left on the ground are thousands likely of green card holders and permanent residents, the administration doesn't include those Americans in their tabulation that they talk to us about publicly about Americans left on the ground, U.S. citizens, and even that number in the hundreds seems to be built on math that has never really been explained. And Brett, at the top of the show, I played a soundbite and I'm trying to get the reaction of all of our guests today to this soundbite. It didn't really get Quite the attention that I expected that it might. Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor for President Biden, went on Good Morning America. And in Cut 15, he said this about the decision to leave Afghanistan, all of our troops out, even with Americans and others still stranded. Listen, my full interview with Brett Baer available online at GuyBensonShow.com. Also on the free podcast, along with the rest of the show, every single day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, and wherever you get your free podcast. We're there. When we come back, the home stretch. We'll dip our toe back into woke tales again, this time about honor rolls in schools. Apparently that's a problem now as well. We'll discuss next.
1: For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com.
2: Home stretch here on the Guy Benson Show on this Wednesday. Always glad that you tune in. We've talked about there's been a concerted effort to reduce academic standards and benchmarks across the country. And we mentioned in the last hour about how one teachers union president is talking about how learning loss is a myth. They don't want really testing to prove that learning loss isn't a myth because that might make them look bad. They also don't want to reward excellence the way that they used to, which is why some of these school districts across the country, we've mentioned a few out in the Pacific Northwest, out in Nevada. There was a prominent example of this where they are reducing the standards for graduation on proficiency and other relevant metrics. They are defining down competence and proficiency, and they're doing it in the name of equity, which I think is actually really offensive. They're saying, well, this is really for students of color, which is far beyond the soft bigotry of low expectations. It is institutionalizing low expectations. And, of course, that will have an impact on the kids if you're telling them that we all collectively expect less of you because of the color of your skin. It's just awful. We've also seen that a number of schools around the country – Charter schools, magnet schools in particular, that have had for years successful, competitive application processes where you have to get in based on merit, test scores, etc. That has been done away with. We've seen it in San Francisco. We've seen it in Northern Virginia. We've seen it in New York City. Merit is a bad thing. Merit is unfair. Merit does not play in to equity there are too many students with this skin color who succeed in these realms so let's get rid of the systems let's get rid of the standards and the latest example also in new york city has to fall under the category of woke tales,
0: woke tales.
2: headline in the new york post new york city wants schools to rethink honor rolls deemed detrimental to students not making the grade. They're remaking the grade, writes the Post. New York City's Department of Education wants schools to rethink honor rolls. I love this. At the left, they want us to reimagine community safety and policing. Let's rethink honor rolls and class rankings, too, because they're, quote, detrimental to some kids, according to new guidance. Recognizing student excellence via honor rolls and class rank can be detrimental to learners who find it more difficult to reach academic success, often for reasons beyond their control, the document states. So they want schools to widen recognitions to include other contributions to the school. Including demonstrations of, wait for it, social justice. I understand that there are some people who have special needs, who aren't going to be high achievers when it comes to academic learning. That does not mean that they are not important members of a community. It does not mean that they're not going to be successful in life. Major examples of extremely successful people would fall into that category. That does not mean that we need to get rid of the concept of academic excellence, class ranking, honor rolls, For the vast majority of students who should have something to strive toward, we should be rewarding this stuff. We should be incentivizing this stuff. We should be celebrating this stuff. But because it's unfair and it's not equitable and it doesn't take into consideration the contributions of people, for example, who may not get good grades or study, but they're very good and impactful with their social justice activism or what have you, I mean, it's, it's madness. Maybe you can come up with other metrics, other forms of recognition, right? If there are people with special needs, but they're amazing and they demonstrate integrity and kindness. There are other ways to point that out and to applaud that in some sort of official way. That does not require getting rid of of honor roll, getting rid of class rank. I mean, there is an absolute assault against the concept of merit, against the concept of quantifying success. They want to eliminate the metrics by which we quantify and measure and track these things because they want to dumb everything down in the name of equity and fairness It's not fair that some kids are gifted or work really hard and get recognized for it. Let's reduce everything. Let's reduce the definition of proficiency. Let's reduce graduation requirements. And for the people who are doing extremely well through natural gifts or hard work or some combination thereof, it's not really fair that they're recognized. So let's get rid of the recognitions. Let's reimagine the way we do this. It's not just the old sort of lefty thing, politically correct thing where everyone gets a trophy, like a participation trophy. They're getting rid of the trophies. They're getting rid of the benchmarks by which we decide who get the trophies, who've earned the trophies. Just not fair. Achievement is not equal. Life isn't all equal and fair. That is reality. And we do a grave disservice. These woke brigades do a grave disservice by trying to get rid of of any of the lines of demarcation, as if they don't exist, as if they don't matter, while telling entire groups of students, we expect less of you because of your background, because of your skin color. And imagine being a disadvantaged student whose ticket to a better life and more opportunities and a great college might go straight through your gifts, your hard work, your ability to achieve well and score well on standardized tests where a lot of colleges are saying, oh, we're not going to look at that anymore. That's not fair. That's not equitable. That's a ticket out for a lot of kids. Being on the honor roll, being ranked high in the class, you've earned that. Well, they've got to get rid of that too. It's like they want to trap you in failing schools and then also eliminate the ways that you can distinguish yourself. Anyway, we brought this up on the call earlier, on the planning call for the show. And producer Christine was waxing nostalgic about what was it Christine the one time you made the honor roll and your parents were blown away
0: uh they took me out I remember it was in fifth grade I got taken out to a very very fancy dinner because I think they were in shock and they were very happy and proud of their little cookie
2: and then what next semester you couldn't pull it off again
0: um it was it was it was tough for cookie I I I got there I Maybe like one or two more times. I know in college I was much better. I was a much more studious student. But, uh, yeah, I'm sure I, unlike you and Wyatt, who probably ran the honor roll system, um, it didn't always happen for Cookie. But can I just tell you something? I always strive for it. And it made me, I would see my friends be on the honor roll, and we would have to go to the class assembly and watch them get their certificate and that made me want to work harder. It made me want to be on the honor roll because I thought that was so cool. Look at my friends.
2: Right. It's something to thing. to strive toward and achieve, which I of guess course. is now bad in some people's minds. I was, look, I was a good student. I worked hard. I liked school. I think I was on the honor roll probably every semester of high school. I made the dean's list a number of times in college. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter. I think at the time of course when you're trying to get from station to station in life and then graduate with a degree and enter the workforce, this stuff mattered at the time. And I'm glad that there was a structure that incentivized all of this. Because if they got rid of the incentives and just sort of blurred all the lines, it might have been tempting to say, well, you know, it's it's not really going to matter. So I'll work a little bit less hard. I'll be less engaged. I'll do more stuff that I want to do and less stuff that I need to do. I was not the best student. I was like upper decile, the top decile of my class, but nowhere near like valedictorian or anything like that. I was at a very competitive high school. But I, And I'm not like you know mad about this because I was an honor roll kid saying, oh, how dare they get rid of honor roll? I had so much of my self-worth wrapped up in it. No, I, I didn't. I just think it's a healthy thing for society to incentivize and celebrate success. And I feel like there are a lot of people across our society right now, most of whom I think would be more in the woke, progressive end of things, who view that as a problem. And look, I had other things where I was not nearly as successful. You could even say unsuccessful. We were talking about the presidential physical fitness challenges. Remember those back in elementary school with, like, rope climbing and shuttle runs and pull-ups. There were a bunch of things, and I never even came close to getting that certificate of merit. I could do some of it somewhat competently but was just hopeless on other stuff. Like, pull-ups, forget it. Not a chance. Christine, were, were you more of the presidential fitness? Christine, were you more of a high achiever on the presidential fitness side of things?
0: 100%. I was always an athlete, even in high school. You know, I was on track team uh, aside from cheerleading. But that was where I was getting that. Remember, you either got the blue medal or the red one. I always got the red. I was always the fastest girl in the school. Like, that's where I, you know really showcased my physical ability and honestly it was really great because that gave me some you know pride and other people thought that was really cool too so and then other people you know a couple of my other friends wanted to do better but they they've done away with that there's no way they would have any physical fitness test now in public school system
2: I think they might I because I'm looking up here. I guess there's still at least some places the Presidential Physical Fitness Award. And what you would need to do, it's based on these things. Sit-ups, timed for a minute. Push-ups, as many as you can do without resting. Pull-ups, as many as you can do. Or there's another option, a flexed arm hang for as long as possible. The 30-foot shuttle run. The V-seat reach on flexibility. And then the mile run. Oh, I hated the mile run as a kid. Hated it.
0: Oh, I loved it. That was, that's where I really, I was beating the boys. There was, like, most of the girls just did the hang on the, uh, you know, on on the bar. I was beating the boys in pull-ups. That's what I remember. Ah, the good old days.
2: Yeah, but that's bad. I mean, it's just not fair that you were so good at that. And you should just uh, identify as an honor roll recipient. I can identify as someone who could do lots of pull-ups. And if I couldn't, it's someone else's fault. And let's not count. I mean, that's the madness that some people are trying to inflict and enshrine as a matter of policy in schools. And as is so often the case with Woke Tales, I think it's up to everyone else to say no. No, absolutely not. We got to break because we're out of time. Back here tomorrow for the Guy Benson Show. We've got a good lineup tomorrow as well. We'll talk to you same time. Same place, it is The Guy Benson Show. Have a good night.
3: Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think.
2: Listen live or get the podcast now at
1: from the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.